Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, in as much as our lives rest upon your word, we ask that you would open it to us now in a fresh way, in a way in which we may not merely see the truth, but that we would taste it, and that we would long for it, and that we would bow to it and be formed and shaped by it into our Savior, Jesus Christ. It is through his name that we pray. Amen. You will probably want to take that way down because I'm not even barely talking right now. In my former church on Lookout Mountain, we had a sound system. They kept me just above zero. There are some texts that when you're asked to preach on, you get real excited. You know, some of those those texts that everyone knows are those home run texts that are going to be exciting, where you get to talk about great things. And then there are other texts that you are asked to preach, where when you think about what you're being asked, you basically just fall into a heap wondering how much of your hypocrisy is going to come through as you speak. In saying about the man at the conference, about him struggling with himself, uh, for me, when I was first asked by uh, my very first session that I was sitting under as a new convert in Christ, when I was told that you need to pursue pastoral ministry, I laughed in their faces. And I said, well, for one reason, well, one thing, I don't wear a tie. And I really connected wearing ties with being a pastor. Um, But more importantly, I had not been a good person before I became a believer. Yes, I was raised in church. Um, In fact, my family, we uh, were very committed Uh, We helped plant multiple churches. I've seen this process, breaking, you know, tearing down, setting up uh, the 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 middle or elementary school cafeteria. So far, I've done elementary school cafeteria. I've done middle school cafeteria. I've done high school cafeteria. Um, But what was interesting, but but for me, it the the gospel didn't connect with me. I didn't believe it. And um, not only did I not believe it, I thought the contrary. And I lived my life. The motto of my life was, if you can't be good, be good at it. I was really good at not being good. Um, For me, a good time was drinking as much as I could, uh, taking in whichever drugs I could get my hands on, and then going out and getting into fights with Marines. That was a good time. That was a great night out. Um, I am not gentle. I was addicted to much wine and other things. I did not have a good handle on my own life, let alone even being interested in a family and taking care of a family. I was not sober-minded. 
I can't think of one thing in the list of qualifications that would have been true of me, not just as an unbeliever, obviously, but as this young man standing before this session of elders, hearing them say that I should pursue pastoral ministry. I've laughed in their faces. When we think about this matter of who we call to serve as officers in Christ's church, this is really important. My own sense of disqualification manifested itself in many ways, but I remember having conversations with friends who friends were also encouraging me to pursue pastoral ministry. One of the big things that I would say over and over and over is, but what if people know what I'm really like? And what if what I'm really like comes through my ministry to the point that I fail utterly and completely and totally destroy what's going on. And my friends, out of a good heart, said, you don't have to worry about that if you are in God's hands. And they meant well, but they were wrong. Paul tells us here in 1 Timothy 3 that the reason that he is giving so many instructions that began back in chapter 1 about the different aspects of the life of the church and giving, and giving so many specific instructions about what's going on is because of what he says here in 3 verses 14 and 15 about the nature of what the church is. As the church of Jesus Christ um, is the pillar and buttress of the truth of the living God. Thomas Murray, in his book, Pastoral Theology, says this, very much of the peace, prosperity, usefulness, comfort, and honor of the church depends upon the character of its officers. And hence, the exceeding great care which should be taken in selecting them. For me, I was very, very much concerned because of my own past issues and the way that my sin was continuing to manifest itself. And so one of the things that my pastor at the time encouraged me to do was read a book by E.M. Bounds called Power Through Prayer. If you haven't read that, pick it up. It's short, so if you don't like to read, it's right up your alley. I did not like to read at that time, so it was right up my alley. But Ian Bounds wrote this book about the power of prayer as a way of encouraging ministers or officers in the church. And one of the things he said within the first few sentences of the book that grabbed my heart was this, that men are God's method. Men are God's method. The church is looking for better methods. God is looking for better men, people. What's important with God 
are those who are serving. Because people are what God uses to accomplish His purposes. We can see just how important then the, the, the officers of the church are given the nature of what they are doing. They are leading the church. Paul here gives us two specific reasons why the qualifications of officers are so important. One, if you notice at the beginning of his discussion for elders, and then if you notice at the very end of his discussion for deacons, he basically shows that both offices have a dignity that are attached to the office, that there is an honor that is attached to the office, that there is great influence that is exercised through the office. If that influence is not exercised well, then you get Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel 34 tells us the story of the condition of Israel because of the character of her leaders, her shepherds. Now, I know that we tend to use the word shepherd to speak a lot of times about pastoral ministry. It's where pastoral comes from. Um, A lot of times uh, it gets connected to the work of the elders in general as shepherding. But one of the things I think you need to understand is that shepherding doesn't just speak of spiritual things. It speaks of material things. And what you find in the concept of shepherding is the office of elder and deacon together. The shepherds of Israel, because they were bad men, because they lacked character, because they were not godly, because of that, the power and influence that they had because of their positions was used to destroy God's people. They were to do three main things. They were to feed, they were to lead or serve, and they were to protect. But because these men were bad men and they lacked the character of what good leaders have, because of that, what we are told is that instead of them feeding the sheep, they were feeding on the sheep. The sheep had become food for them rather than them providing food for the sheep. Because they were bad men, rather than leading the sheep, what was happening is they were using the sheep. The sheep were there for the shepherds to get something from. Whether it was more money, which we are told very specifically in several minor prophets. Read Micah, for example. And read the way that it talks about leadership laying on their beds, meditating, not on the Word of God like you, like you see in Joshua or David or other leaders uh, from Israel's past, but they lay on their beds meditating about what plans can we come up with in order for us to take inheritance away from these tribes of Israel so that we have more. We know that they were using the sheep rather than serving the sheep or leading the sheep. And lastly, they were supposed to protect the sheep, but what does God say? My sheep have been scattered. My sheep 
have become prey for wild animals. When your leaders lack good character, good qualities, when they lack genuine godliness, it is not as simple as saying, well, you know, as long as you know, God's still there, it's okay. Beloved, God's providence and sovereignty certainly does continue to operate even in the midst of bad leadership. But make no mistakes, the effects of bad leadership can ruin and destroy churches. I just got done, Pastor Olson was away on his vacation, so I just got done preaching while he was gone, and I took Church Creek through the letters to the seven churches in Revelation. The very first church, the church in Ephesus, is a church that was a very, that's very interesting in the history of the New Testament as you read about what took place in Ephesus. And Ephesus was a place that um, had Paul minister there for years, also had the Apostle John minister there for many years. Timothy ministered there for many years. It was a place that, that had embraced the gospel was, was uh, engaged in worship and mission. Uh, they were loving their neighbors tangibly, spiritually. They were, they were doing the right things. But Paul warns the elders there before he leaves. He says, you've got to watch out because sh- uh, um, wolves will come in. And so you've got to make sure you keep them out. Later on, that first letter to the, in, in, uh, to the church in Ephesus that's in Revelation uh, chapter 2, what we find out is they had done an excellent job. They were a church known for their theology, for their doctrine, and for not entertaining false leaders. They had done a great job. And yet, Jesus says, because you've lost your first love, you are in danger of losing your candlestick. Leadership is vital in the health of the church and even in the church's existence. What does God say to the, to the bad leaders in Ezekiel 34? Because of you, because of your failure, because of what you've done, I, I myself, am going to come to my people and I will shepherd my people, no less than 20 times in the scripture reading that was read earlier from Ezekiel 34, no less than 20 times does God say, I will fill in the blank. And we know that the very end of that promise is that he will come to shepherd his people in the form of David. But not David himself. David had already died at this point. This is David's greater son, Jesus Christ. And what is Christ? Who was Jesus but Emmanuel, God with us, God coming in the flesh, manifesting himself in the flesh, coming bodily to God's people in order to be, according to Jesus in John 10, the good shepherd, who unlike the bad shepherds, 
who, who starve the sheep, who use the sheep, who scatter the sheep. He's the good shepherd who does all those things by laying down his life for the sheep. But Jesus, in then dying, being raised from the dead, being exalted to the heavenly places, does that mean that his shepherding ministry was over? No. His shepherding ministry continued as he was the shepherd who gathered around himself and who reformed and reshaped men, some who would have been maybe qualified as good, others who were definitely not good, right? A tax collector. And he took these men and he discipled them. And we are told over and over and over that he sends them out. He sends them out in his name. He sends them out in his power. He sends them out as those whom, whom he is remaking in his image. And Paul tells us in the second letter to Timothy that that pattern that we see in Jesus is a pattern that is to continue in the church. As Paul says to Timothy, the things you've heard from me that I've taught in the presence of of many men, you take and you teach to other men who those men will be able to teach to others also. That there is this pattern of discipleship within the offices of the church where the risen, glorified Jesus Christ continues to shepherd his church through the mediation of elders and deacons. Elders representing that spiritual rule of Jesus Christ, deacons representing that mercy of Jesus Christ. When we look at these qualifications then, do you see why they're so important as to why Paul would go to such ends to get so specific with these two different lists that he provides? We're not going to try to get into the list. I'm going to leave this to your shepherds as they... Um, lead you in this process of nomination and as they lead you in the process of, of training those who are nominated, uh, testing those who are nominating are nominated in order to see who uh, Christ may be calling in order for them to be able to set before you men that they believe meet the qualifications that are here. I'm going to let them deal with the specifics of those things, but what I do want to note here is some of the similarities. Because I'm one of those that think that big picture is really important. Because if you don't have the big picture right, then the small pictures can get scattered and go all over the place, right? Details have to fit within something. The narrative that the details fit within is this narrative of God coming to his people as Jesus Christ in the flesh to shepherd his people and then for him to, to set up under shepherds. As he, exalted, sitting at the right hand of God, ministering through his spirit, working through under shepherds, continues to care for his church. Notice here that there is no hierarchy that is listed between the elders and the deacons. Sometimes, a lot of, or often, what can happen. Um, 
is that the elders can be seen as varsity, and, and the uh, deacons are, are, the, are the junior varsity. They're the JV team. Um, but if you look um, at the way um, Scripture here is unfolding these two different offices, if you look at the New Testament as a whole, if you look at our book of church order, if you need help sleeping one night, pull out the book of church order. And you can read in, in the, uh, the respective chapters on elders and deacons, you can see that both elders and deacons are representatives of Christ. They're not representatives of you. You're not electing representatives to represent your issues in the session meeting. These are Christ's representatives who are being called to represent Jesus' issues and concerns to you. It doesn't mean that, you, that the shepherds are not there to care for you and to provide you, that, you know, the leadership that listens to you. But at the heart of what's going on, they are representing Christ to you, representing Christ's love to you, Christ's mission to you, Christ's care to you, Christ's good news to you, Christ, 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 and just keep filling in the blank. But elders can't do it all. And deacons can't do it all. We are not Christ. And so we have these two offices to take care of Christ's concerns in and for his church. The ministry of Jesus Christ continues through the Spirit, through under-shepherds in the church, so that the under-shepherds themselves are representing Christ to the church, which means then that not just anyone should be asked to do that. Great care should be taken in selecting persons for biblical office. Before someone is ordained to a calling so sacred, it should be indubitable that they are men of suitable intelligence who will keep themselves well informed about the interests of the cause of Christ, men who will exercise brotherly charity and study the peace of the church, men of patience who for Christ's sake will bear with much that is trying in conducting the complicated interests committed to them. Men who are willing to deny self in order that they may honor the master. Men of good repute who have the confidence of the whole community for real godliness. And men who can be looked up to as examples and confided in as following in the footsteps of Christ. Shepherds, whether they are elders or deacons, do not drive the flock. Where did we see shepherds trying to drive the flock? Ezekiel 34. We're told very specifically that you lay the shoulder into them. They're pushing. They're driving. Real shepherds, as they are under shepherds of Jesus Christ, shepherd in the way that he shepherded. And how did Jesus shepherd? How are we told in Hebrews? 
He went first, and the church is following. In the Middle East, even to this day, what you will find is that when you see a shepherd working with the flock, the shepherd is never behind the sheep. Even to this day, if you go over there and do a tour, what you will find are shepherds walking in front of the sheep and using different calls and using their voice to do certain things to help the sheep follow them. What's interesting is um, a, a, a man that I've read on this issue, uh, Dr. Timothy Whitmer, uh, who uh, was a professor of practical theology at Westminster in Philadelphia, talks about a tour that he was doing over in Israel. He had taken a whole group of pastors over there, and, and as he um, was teaching them about shepherding and leadership, he had, he had just made that comment about you never see the shepherds you know, behind the sheep, driving them. You always see them out in front. And he says, and of course, of course, as they turn around, you know, take a turn, there's sheep with several men behind them making noise and doing things, driving the sheep. And so, of course, you, you know, people at the, you know, were like, uh, we got questions. <laughs> you just said this, but what do we do with this? So he had the bus driver stop. He got out with the translator, went over, talked to the men, came back a few minutes later, gets on the bus, and he's chuckling. And so they're like, all right, so what's the deal? Why are they behind? And he said, those sheep are being taken to slaughter. When you push and when you drive from behind, you're taking them to slaughter. Isn't that what we saw in Ezekiel 34? The men of God who are called to office as they represent Christ, they don't just embrace the gospel, they are manifestations of the gospel. And what is that gospel? But that Jesus loves by dying. That Jesus leads by dying. That Jesus leads through humility. That Jesus leads not by making much of himself, but making much of others. That Jesus was willing to not count equality with God as something to be grasped, but willingly gave up the glory of who he was as God in order to come as a servant and serve even to the point of death. And those of you who are in office... As scary as it is to lead by way of humility, do not forget that what we see in Christ, what we are about to focus on in Advent, is that God accomplishes his eternal purpose through his eternal purposes through what seems lowly, weak, unattractive, unskilled, nothing of any worldly value at all. That's how God accomplishes his eternal purposes and plans. And so, there's no hierarchy that both offices, as they represent Christ, are called to do so, representing um, his ministry, not just through their words, not through, just through their teaching, not just through their leading, but in the way they go about those things. Not driving from behind, but leading from in front. What time do we end? 
What time do you, what time do we stop? Oh, don't tell me that. Notice that both are called, both offices are called to be those who are already shepherding their families well. If they're not shepherding themselves, now this doesn't mean you have to be married. Um, A lot of times that's put forward, um, and I don't know if that's something you guys do. If so, I don't mean to step on toes, uh, but that's an extra-biblical requirement. If you have a family, he needs to be shepherding his family well. If he can't shepherd his family, how will he shepherd the church, right? Um, Notice that the qualifications for elder meet the nature of what the office is. A lot of it has to do with thinking. A lot of it has to do with their ability to process, not, not just know God's word, but to be able to process God's word, to be able to embrace the wisdom of God's Word. They, they, they are able to find that wisdom and process their own lives in light of that wisdom so that they can help others follow in living according to the wisdom of Scripture, which is why one of the few differences between the two offices is that the elders need to be able to teach. But notice that for the deacons, it doesn't mean that theological knowledge is unimportant because the the deacons also have to be able to confess the mysteries of godliness with a clear conscience. It's another way of saying that the deacons have to be able to embrace the theology of the church in clear conscience so that as they exercise their office, they do so in light of that truth. Notice how he says, confess the mysteries of doctrine. of of godliness, right? And then tells us what the mysteries of godliness is by unfolding for us an ancient confession of faith about Jesus Christ, later in 1 Timothy 3.16. So there is theological content not only for the elders, but also for the deacons. This is why, by the way, that our Book of Church order uh, calls us to teach both offices, theology, the Bible, the Book of Church Order, things like that. Not just the elders. Both offices do this because both offices are representing Christ. And what did Jesus tell us? That as you go forth, make disciples. And how do we do that? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and doing what? Teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. The elders can't do that alone. There's too much. The deacons do that as well. And so both offices are leading by going in front as examples of Christ, as examples of what he teaches, and as they go through their work, they are specifically doing what they're doing as a way of not just reflecting Christ, but as a way of presenting and teaching Christ. The deacons, I think, have some of the most difficult spiritual conversations in their ministry. Now, that could just be me. I have had to have some very 
difficult conversations as a minister through the years, including my last church. I had a man in my church come and confess to me that he had molested his own daughter. And I can tell you, shepherding him in that situation was, for me, it was so much easier than shepherding a family that was struggling financially, and because of their financial struggle, they were losing their hope in Christ. The deacons don't just go in in those situations and talk to them about, well, let's look at your budget. Well, if you do this, this, and this, everything will be fine. Now, they do have to do that at times. But if they are not bringing Christ in that, then one of the worst things that can happen is that the deacon can unwittingly be training the family that their hope really comes from their ability to make good decisions financially. So I think it's really hard to be a deacon. Um, I think it's, and, and so and it, it's so important for the deacons to be trained in Christ so that they are manifesting Christ and drawing the church into the mercy of Christ, into that material shepherding of the people of God in Christ. There is so much more that can be said. Let me say this. When you take these two lists and set them next to each other and you look at what's going on, I think you, I think you can boil them down to three things. What you're looking for in an elder and in a deacon as they are those who are mature in Christ, who are actively following Christ themselves, what you're looking for is, are, do they desire to serve? A lot of times when we do this, by the way, Church Creek is going through the same process right now. Uh, next week, we'll be actually having our congregational meeting to you know, have the names submitted. So we're going through this right now. And so often what's get, what gets emphasized here is talk to, you know, if you, if you think you see the gifts in this person, then go talk to them, right? You, I know that you guys are doing this. And a lot of times what ends up happening, you say, ask them if they're willing. That's a great question. It's a very important practical question that needs to be asked. But a better question in, in addition to that is do they want to? Is there some kind of internal desire? A lot of times, because of the way we think about humility, guys get, you know, get trained into thinking that they shouldn't desire office. They should just sit back and wait to see if the angels descend upon him you know, in a quiet time or in a personal conversation or something. And there is certainly a certain type of person that you don't want pursuing office, the person that doesn't meet these qualifications, uh, because you don't want them to have authority because they won't exercise it well. But it doesn't mean it's wrong to desire to serve in this way. There are two aspects to the call. There is obviously the outward um, call from other people, like I received from, from that session, in that first conversation. But there also has to be an internal, subjective desire to do it. So don't be afraid to ask, do you want to? And don't be afraid to answer yes if you want to. I know you'll be tempted to say, well, you know, I'm willing if Jesus, you know. Don't be afraid to say, you know what? I have felt the Spirit tugging on my heart, leading me to serve in this special way. Because 
the answer is not left up to the person. The person may desire it. Well, guess what happens? They then go through training. And guess who gets to help you determine whether or not their desire is a good one? Or if it's a time-appropriate one? Your elders and your deacons as they help shepherd these potential candidates through the process. So don't be afraid to ask, are they not just willing, but do they desire it? Secondly, are they orthodox in their faith? Or as we would say it here, can they adopt the Westminster Standards with a clear conscience? Presbyterianism is one of the few Reformed denominations that doesn't require members to adopt the confession uh, and catechisms. Most of the Reformed denominations, you have to, as a member, you have to say that you're willing to adopt the, the standards of the church. But in Presbyterianism, we, we have removed that. Um, and so in Presbyterianism, you can be a member of a Presbyterian church without actually being Presbyterian. They're, that's okay. Um, but you can't be an officer. And so you want to ask them, do they desire to serve? Um, and then the session helps work out for that person whether or not they are in good conscience able to adopt the standards of the church. And then lastly, do they have proven moral character? Not just do they desire it, but do they, have they proven it? And not perfectly. Because if you wait for that, you're just going to be waiting around. And you'll never have more officers. You'll never have another pastor. And I would imagine your officers right now would then decide to demit. Don't wait. You're not, we're not looking for perfection here. But we're looking for proven moral character. And so as the Apostle Paul says, who is sufficient for such things? A popular answer today is to say no one. But if that's the case, we won't have any officers. So let me close with this. The one who is sufficient for these things is sufficient not because of his gifts, of his talents, not because of his proven moral character, not because of his desire, not because of his example, not because of any of those things. He is sufficient as he is resting in Jesus Christ. And by resting in Jesus Christ, what I mean is this, that he is striving to become more and more the qualifications that are listed up front. That he is striving to grow deeper and deeper in his relationship with Jesus Christ. And not just that he is desiring these things, but he is actually growing in these things. That he is maturing, that he is developing, that he is growing, that he's becoming more Christ-like. The one who is sufficient is the one who understands that Jesus is the one who is still leading and shepherding. And everything that the under-shepherd is doing is because of Christ, is in Christ, and is through Jesus Christ. Jesus, not just in his ministry, Paul tells us here in, in 3.16, not just in his earthly ministry, 
but even in his resurrection ministry was caring for the spiritual and physical needs of his people. He is still doing so today, and as he works in the lives of his officers, he then also through them is working in the lives of his people. In this process, you have to remember that who we are and what we do always flows out of who we are in Christ. Your resources are not your own natural gifts, talents, and, and, and uh, abilities. Your sufficiency comes from being crucified and raised to new life in Jesus Christ who dwells in you so that it is no longer you who live and minister, but Christ who lives in you and ministers through you. Ian Bounds also said, the glory and efficiency of the gospel is staked on the people who minister it. And the bishop of our souls and the deacon of our lives, Jesus Christ, is not looking for better methods He is looking for better people because people are his methods. Let's pray. It is humbling, Father, to read this passage, let alone to even try to process it. And not just to process it in terms of the objective meanings that are here, which needs to happen but to process it existentially. To use it as a mirror. To be willing to be honest. But Lord, help us to see that that is not something to be feared, but it is something to be embraced. Because there is nothing that we can find from looking into that mirror that has not already been covered in Jesus Christ. There is nothing that we can find there that has somehow stayed outside the realm of the crucifixion of Christ. There is nothing that can be found there that is somehow, you know, missing from what you have become satisfied about through your Son. And so help us to hold up that mirror so that we can find those things that we need to see so that we can respond in the humility of confession and prayer, asking you, Lord, not just in general terms, but very specifically to form Christ in us in that area of our lives. Because we know that you answer the prayers that are offered according to your will, and it is already your will to shape Christ in us in every aspect of our lives in our ministries. So bless this church, Lord, as they begin this process. Give them wisdom, gospel wisdom, Lord, biblical wisdom, Christocentric wisdom. And I pray that you're moving in the hearts of men here to desire to lay down their lives for your church. Bless their their nomination process, bless their training process, and bless this church as they continue to bear witness to Jesus Christ here in the Park Circle area, that there would be many that are drawn to Christ through their ministry 
that will be able to sing with us, not just in worship services here on the Lord's Day, but before your throne as we live as your people of worship in the heavenly places forever in the full perfection of Jesus Christ to the full enjoyment of your joy and glory forevermore. Bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.